So Romans 12, let's go ahead and open up your Bibles there, and we're going to continue our lesson where we have been looking at Romans 12, and this series, uh, this is now the third week where we are going through uh, Romans 12 up through 16. And if you've been here the previous two lessons, basically what we find is that with Romans 12.1, we have Paul applying the truths of the gospel that he has just expounded um, in the previous 11 uh, chapters of Romans. And so let me ask a question of you. How is it that Paul applies Romans 1 through 11, those first 11 chapters? How does he apply that to his readers and, and to, our, um, to our lives? What does he say? That, that is right. It's Offer your body, offer yourself as a sacrifice to God. And if you look in verse 1, therefore, in light of all that I have shared with you, therefore, I exhort you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So Paul explains that the appropriate response to God's salvation and who he is and who man is, and sin, and the salvation, and the justification, the response to this is to worship and praise him by offering yourself, offering your body as a sacrifice to him. It's as though you say, here I am, Lord, use me. And then it, it, it would be very, very similar to what he has said in uh, Romans 6.13, where it says, present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members, meaning the members of your body, as instruments of righteousness to God. God, here I am. My body, my instruments, my hands, my feet, my mouth, they are here to be instruments in your hand. And this is going to be the act of worship and praise that is in response to all that he has shared of the deep theologies of the gospel in Romans 1 through 11. And the way that you apply this, how is it that you present yourselves to God as a sacrifice? Well, we actually see this um, in the next few verses. So in Romans 12, in verses 3 through 8, it's you, you apply this into your life by viewing self-sacrifice as the lens through which you view your salvation. I have been saved so that I may respond in a self-sacrificial way. And so we looked last week at the two arenas through which we must view our salvation through the lens of self-sacrifice. And it was saying, one, you must view yourself self-sacrificially. Um, but then also view your service. And so we, we had a great um, discussion just about the service and life that we live in the body of Christ is to be viewed through the lens of self-sacrifice, not through the lens of self-service, okay? And so, um, and, and one of the neat things that we had looked at was the fact that we are each members of a body, but we, the individual member belong to the body as a whole. So if I am the hand, 
and the body that I'm a part of is here Calvary. I, as the hand, am here to serve the needs of the body. What does the body need its hand to do? I will then do it. If you are its foot, then you will do for the body what the body needs the foot to do. So you view your service and ministry within the church self-sacrificially because you are a member owing yourself to the body and to the service of the body to which you belong. And so what is it? And we'll ask this question and get a little feedback. I think that we might have a couple people who've heard this answer before. But what is it that we call it when you give what you have, including yourself, yeah, we know what we're saying, that someone else needs because God wants you to, regardless of how you feel about it? What do we call that? Love. love. Well, that's right. That is, that is love. Giving when I have, giving what I have that you need because God wants me to, regardless of how I feel about it, that is love. And so when Paul is saying, give of yourself self-sacrificially to the needs of others because God wants you to, regardless of how you feel about it, he is saying to what? Love. And, and finish that phrase. He's saying actually love, love one another, right? Love your neighbor. And, and, and so we know where this is actually um, leading back to. And if you look at Matthew 22, and this is a verse that you're all familiar with, um, so no need to necessarily turn there. But Matthew 22, starting verse 36, um, you actually have uh, the Pharisee that comes and says, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, all that you are your whole self. Love the Lord your God. This is the great and the foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, on these two commandments hang the whole law and prophets. So when, when he is saying that, when he's saying on these two commandments, love God and love your neighbor, on these two hang the whole law and the prophets. Literally, you know, what, what he's actually talking about is the, the Old Testament, what we refer to as Old Testament. It was divided into different parts. And you had um, the law, you had the prophets, and then you had the writings. Um, and so the, the writings would be what we would call the poetry books. So um, the law, the prophets, and then the writings, but you could just say, refer to the law and the prophets means scripture. So at their time, when they would say that this is all according to the law and the prophets, then it, it would be the equivalent of us saying, oh, the Old and New Testament. And you could also say, very similarly, say, yeah, I mean, everything that's written in Greek and Hebrew, right? Well, okay, yes, technically there's some Aramaic in there, but I don't mean we're meaning to exclude the Aramaic. I mean, what, what it would be meaning is both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the entirety of Scripture. And that's what Christ is saying, is that the entirety of Scripture, all that God has given us in Revelation, hangs on love God and love your neighbor. And these two, these two are actual commandments that we have. And in Deuteronomy 6 and verse 5, you know, that, that's where it says, You shall love Yahweh your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. All that you are, love your God with. 
And then in Leviticus 19, verse 18, it says at, at the end of that, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that's really a neat passage. Um, I was actually going to go and read, maybe kind of earmark um, in Leviticus uh, 19. Um, you, you can actually go through and read, and it's a list of uh, laws saying, it, this same passage was saying, when you harvest your grain, don't go all the way to the edges. Leave it for people to gather. That's loving your neighbor. If you wrong somebody, you're going to pay them back and make restitution. That's loving your neighbor. And it goes through both on things that you positively must do, but also negatively what you don't do. And if you wanted to summarize it, love your neighbor and you'll fulfill all these laws. And so um, it's no surprise that we actually look that God's response to the gospel that he gives us in Romans 12 is, number one, sacrifice yourself to God. Love God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your might. Love God with all that you are. And then the second response was sacrificially give of yourself to your church body in service, in ministry. That's love others. So Paul's response is the response to the gospel, the response to your salvation is to love God and to love your neighbor. And that's what we see in these first few verses, uh, the first eight verses of Romans chapter 12. And one of, one of my favorite, this is great, uh, Go ahead and flip over to James. Now that we're in Romans 1, uh, or Romans 12, let's, let's go over to James chapter 2. Uh, in James chapter 2, talking about showing favoritism within the body. And James is saying, don't show favoritism. It makes no sense. It's theologically wrong. Don't do it. Um, but in, in James chapter 2, verse 8, this is how he talks about um, loving God and loving, neighbor, loving your neighbor. It says, if however, in verse 8, chapter 2, if however you are fulfilling, and then what, what does it say? The royal law, which could also be the idea of the king's law. If you are fulfilling the royal law or the king's law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself you are doing well. Why is this passage, because remember, this was pulled out of Leviticus 19. Why is this passage referred to as the royal law, the king's law? It's because our king, Christ, he listed this as number two right underneath, love, love the Lord your God. So if you are fulfilling Christ's law, the king's law in your life by loving your neighbor you're doing well. <laughs> you are doing well. So the king's law, loving God, the king's law, loving your neighbor, that is what Paul is talking about right here. But here's what's neat. Since he has just talked about loving God through self-sacrificial, um, giving of yourself, loving your neighbor, he, he's talked about it through serving them self-sacrificially, immediately what we find is that Paul goes right into love and talking about love. It makes sense that he would go there. Why would he talk about it? Because that is what the whole um, part of Romans 12, 1 through 8, is talking about. Go ahead and look back in, in Romans 12. 
If you want to flip back there, I'm going to start reading in verse 5. It says, when he's talking about our service within the body, he says, So we, though many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness, this is all love your neighbor. All of these are love your neighbor. And then look what he says in the next verse. Right after that, he talks about and let love be without hypocrisy, or let love be genuine. Now, here's what's neat, and this is what we're going to be talking about today. If you, pretty much every translation um, will say, let love be genuine, if you have like the ESV, or let love be without hypocrisy. Um, most of the translations are going to say, let love be whatever, but when you look at this in, in the, the Greek, there's no verb in this passage. What it says is love without hypocrisy. And this right here, and, and I actually got this just to make sure that it was on the paper this time, so I'm following. So if you look at the very top, this is the way that it will actually, um, that it will actually read. It says agape, which we know agape is love. And it's not a verb, it's a noun. Agape, and then the word that follows right after that is actually anupokritos, which this is where we would get un, it's without, unipokritos, hypocrisy. So you could actually get the, even the intent of Paul, you could write this in English by saying love, comma, unhypocritical colon. Let me talk about love. What kind of love? Unhypocritical love. Unupokritos. Colon. And I'm going to have a list now. And if you just look in your, in your passage, um, and, and you can actually turn and look on the backside of, the, uh, of your handout, and this will actually help, help probably show it to you a little bit. We just have after love unhypocritical, imagine the colon, action, 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 action. And I, I, we're going through the verse 13 today, <laughs> but it keeps going all the way through. And, and really, all, if you go all the way up through um, the verse 21, uh, it, it's just um, a verb to do, a verb for you to do, a verb for you to do. And almost every one of them are actually, it's not commands, go do this, but instead it's an action that is being done. And, you know, it's a participle. And so we'll actually see as we start working our way through that it is describing what you're going to be doing if you are living with love. What kind of love? sincere, uh, genuine, unhypocritical, if you are living with sincere love within the body in which you reside, this is what you're going to be doing, each one of these things. So today, 
what we're going to be looking at uh, through verses 9 through 13 in Romans 12, it's going to be describing what self-sacrificial love and ministry within the body looks like. This is the motivation for what we were just talking about. It's love. And if you have genuine love, unhypocritical love, sincere love, this is what you're going to be doing. So when, if you were to look at what is today's lesson, today's lesson is going to be actions that you must implement to fulfill the king's law in your life. Actions that you must implement into your life to fulfill the royal law according to scripture. So let's pray and then we're going to jump right in. Okay? Our God and our Father, we thank you that you have saved us. We thank you that you are saving us and will bring us ultimately into perfection before you. And we pray that while we are here waiting for that day, that we would be able to love you with all that we are. We pray that we would love the body in which you have placed us. And we pray that your word today will impact us, that we may change our lives. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. You guys ready? Oh man. <laughs> Let's go ahead and read uh, the passage. Uh, Romans 12, 9 through 13. Let love be without hypocrisy. By abhorring what is evil, clinging to what is good, being devoted to one another in brotherly love giving preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, being fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in affliction, being devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, pursuing hospitality. Love unhypocritical. Now, how many of you all have seen an Indiana Jones movie? Like a fair number here. Do you all know the one scene where, and I don't even know what one it's in. It's like some, maybe in Morocco or something like that. Um, but there's this big guy with a giant sword, and he's like swinging all over the place and yelling. And what does Indiana Jones do? That's right. He just pulls out a gun and shoots him and walks away, right? It's like, I don't have time for this. So... This is basically what happens to us here. <laughs> it's as though Paul is saying, okay, I don't have time to mess around. We're just going to pull this out. Paul's going to pull out his pistol, and he's going to just shoot us right in our pride. He just jumps right in. Love unhypocritical. Let's start looking at it. The first one, the first action all right, this is the shot. Um, abhorring what is evil. Abhorring what is evil. 
So this word abhorring, you could have hating what is evil. Um, now, there is a hatred in, in Greek that would be hating something that I cherish, some type of secret sin that I hate this, but I cherish it. Think of the Lord of the Rings type of the thing, how the, the ring, it was something that was a, a weight and horrible to, a burden to carry, but it was my precious, right? That is not the hatred that Paul is referring to. The hatred that this word means is having a horror of something. It is hating it exceedingly. It is a hatred that causes you to recoil and separate yourself from something. And that is actually built into the Greek word, this separating and recoiling out of fear and hatred of an object or an item. Right out of the gate, what is unhypocritical love? It is an exceedingly horror-filled hate that causes you to recoil. And what is it that we are hating and recoiling from? Evil. And this is not the abstract evil, just broad general evil. This word right here is evil in active opposition to something that which is good. Evil that is actively opposed to God. That which is opposed to what is good. There's one commentator said that when you look at abhorring what is evil, the Christian is to express his hatred of evil by a withdrawal from it and a loathing of it. This is the response that unhypocritical love has to that which is opposed to God. Do you recoil and draw away in an aberration, a hatred from that which is opposed to God? Brothers and sisters, this, this hit me right in the chest this week. What is your relationship with that which is evil? What level of indecency do you permit in your life? What level of evil do you permit on the screen of your choice? This is incredibly convicting, especially today when we have in our society so much access and we are constantly being inundated by that which is, and to say it, no other, there's no other way to say it, but that which is opposed to God. 
do you recoil in horror from it? James 4 says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility to God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Do you have a friendship with the world? Or do you recoil from it and recoil from that which is evil and opposed to God? In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and this is talking about um, the, the reason why, in context, why do you not marry an unbeliever? So that, that's the topic he's talking about here. But he says in verse 14, For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? I encourage you to ask yourself today, am I willing to obey God's call through Paul on my life in this? Very simply, if so, list the things that are opposed to God that are in your life. Hate them, abhor them, recoil from them, withdraw from them in terror. And I'm not going to tell you you need to go throw your phone away and cancel all of your accounts that you have online, but if you inventory your life and you find that those things or anything else is opposed to God, how can we not recoil and draw away from them in terror and hatred? And this is the same sentiment that we read in Matthew 5. We, we know this, but I think so often, and I'm speaking to myself here as well, we just don't apply it because we don't have the hatred. In Matthew 5.30, if your right hand makes you stumble, what do you do? Slap it? You cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. This is the same thing Christ was teaching. We need to ask ourselves, at Calvary, each individual and each family, we must ask ourselves, what are we not willing to cut off as we lay ourselves on the sacrificial altar before God? I encourage you today, at lunch, Sit down and talk with your family, talk with your spouse, talk with your roommates or your parents. Take inventory from in your life. Recoil and withdraw from that which is evil, that which is opposed to God. This is tough, <laughs> but this is step 
one where Paul goes when he describes unhypocritical love. The word unhypocritical is, and, and, and I think we know this illustration, we've probably heard this many times, but in the Greek drama, you would have the actors who would put on a mask that would look like whatever character or whatever emotion they were wanting to portray, and this is hypocrisy, pretending on the outside what is not under the mask. And this is what we are supposed to do is be un or not or without hypocrisy. If we claim Christ and yet we do not recoil from that which is opposed to him, that is the definition of hypocrisy. This must be addressed today with your family. It's, <laughs> it's going to be addressed today with my family. And it's going to hurt, but there is no other response that we can take. Anything else, any other response to that which is opposed to God is the definition of hypocrisy and is counter to what God is saying, our response to our salvation must be. We must cut it off. But at the same time, it's not just cut it off and recoil from the evil, from that which is opposed to God. We also have clinging to what is good. I'm really glad to be onto this one. clinging to what is good. And this is actually, the, um, the, the word clinging is the word that would be used for the intimacy in marriage, of, of marriage, where the husband and the wife, they are one. They cleave together. They come together. Is cleave the right word? Or is that separate? Yeah, cle no, cleave, yes. A cleave, I think cleaver. That, okay. We're going to continue on. I have cleave. We're cleaving with our spouse. And this is the same idea that this word of clinging to has. So we are to recoil from that which is opposed to God, but that which is good, we cling to in an intimate manner. This is an intimate union that we have with what is good. Can anyone expect to go and threaten someone's wife without having the husband come in and actually stand in and protect her. Well, of course that's going to happen. And how ridiculous would it be for the man to say, whoa, 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 I'm not, I don't want any of you. I just, I'm just going after and attacking your wife. Well, that's not going to happen. That's ridiculous, but that is the same idea that because the husband and wife are one, that is the same idea that we want to have with goodness. We are to be so united with goodness, it would be ridiculous to consider that we would be separated from that. There is to be a unity and oneness between the believer and that which is good, just as there is in marriage. 
unhypocritical love will become intimately united with what is good. And just as you remove the evil from your life, you also fill it with that is good. And this, just as an example, it, above, and from the previous verse, or the previous line when we were just looking at it, if you go and cut off, for example, Disney Plus account from your account, and they're clear and in your face, LGBTQ plus what they are doing with that agenda that they're bringing in, it's not just saying, I'm going to cut that off. Now we have a holy family. It's saying, I'm going to cut that off, but I'm going to bring in what is good. We're going to sing hymns in the evening. After dinner, clean the kitchen, kids, and let's come together. (laughs) That's what we do. (laughs) It's all in numbers. We got six. (laughs) Bring together and sing hymns. Bring in what is good. Get your kids, even your little kids, your young kids, Memorize Psalm 1 with them. Memorize Psalm 4 with them. Memorize Psalm 19 with them. Memorize Psalm 100 with them. Bring into your family's life that which is good. Share dinners with your church family. Share play dates and time. Go out to lunch after church with your church family. Adopt a family for Christmas. Go as a family and do good to other people. Let your family become intimately united and filled with that which is good. And the wonderful thing, I mean, that's just spouting off a few things. There is no end of the list that you can shape and form your family around. Become intimately united and cling to that which is good. We'll keep looking, keep going. It says also, being devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor. Um, So this next section, there's actually going to be um, an interaction that's talking specifically about the church body, the one another. So this is talking about how do you live in unhypocritical love with the other members in the church body. So, the, um, the one another, again, it's talking about relate how you relate to the body that you are a member of, but it says, first of all, being devoted to one another. And being devoted, this is actually a familial love. The love that you have for your, for your mother, your brother, your sister, sometimes the siblings feel sketchy, but somebody threatened a family and, and the love comes out, right? So the devotion that you have to your family is the love that this is talking about. It says being devoted to one another in, and this is great, Philadelphia, literally is the word that we have. This is brotherly love. The way you relate to your brothers and sisters in Christ in this room is one of brotherly love and affection. We are family. Devote yourself to the love of family with those that are around you. 
And notice it goes right in, giving preference to one another in honor. So this right here would be talking about actually going before, leading the way, going as a leader in front of. So we go before our family, we lead the way in our family, in our church family, we are in front of as a leader in our church family in showing honor to one another. So leading the way in honor, what the honor is, is this is what you would get because of the office or the rank that you hold, right? I might, if I was British, and I'll use that, I thought that was going to be safer than looking at American politics. So <laughs> if, if I was British, it doesn't matter what I think about the king or the queen, I show honor to that position and I bow, right? That, that is the same type of honor. It does not matter what I feel about that person, but it's who they are. Because of their position, I will lead the way in showing honor to them. This is deference and reverence. Your church family, which is exactly what it is, family, is to be the ones that you lead the way, take the initiative. You are the first one to show deference and honor and respect because they are part of God's family. They are worthy of that position. Think of this as they are in the image of God and they are sons of God, united with Christ, and therefore I need to lead the way in showing preference and honor to them. So, let me ask a question. I'm going to go through a little list here. And I want you to think. Have you ever been irritated in any of these ways? Okay. We'll, we'll start easy. <laughs> the size of the coffee cups, <laughs> right? The music selection. The music style or instruments. Clothing that others are wearing. Did they have too dressy clothes or did they have not dressy enough clothes on? Were there noisy children or babies? Were there children that just could not be controlled? The length of the sermon. Are there any of these things, and, and I'm serious with this, have you ever been irritated by something on this list before? I have. If you, if you have, I want you to raise your hand. Brothers and sisters, recognize even these things. In Paul's passage, he's saying that it's our responsibility, us, the believer's responsibility to take the lead, to take the leadership, to be able to show honor even in these areas, to show deference and preference and reverence towards the others in our church. We are to outdo our church family in honor. 
think of this as a competition. When you look at the people around you, can you out-honor the person next to you? Run for that as a goal. And if they show you honor, let that spur you on to still be the leader in showing more honor to others. This is befitting of the position that they hold as your family and God's child in our church. Love them with a familial love, like the close-knit love of a sister or a brother. You are the one who takes the lead. This is what we were talking about when it says being devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference or deference to one another in honor. Now, notice what it says in verse 11, not lagging behind in diligence. Not lagging behind in diligence. Where it says that the, the lagging behind could just be lazy or slothful. And the diligence, this is this earnestness that you give yourself to your vocation that you are creating a career in. You can think of it as a hard, diligent worker. And so what this, and, and there are actually some translations that will see this as don't be lazy at work. But this is actually not a verb. There's no verb in here where it says not lagging behind. And so what this is, this is actually best to be understood. How is it that you show honor and deference to those in your, in your family, in your church family? You show honor by not being lazy and slothful about it, but instead working at it as though you're trying to work diligently as you would in a career you're trying to advance in. I'm going to throw myself and give long hours and give it my best to be able to honor and show reverence, deference, and preference. That, that would preach. One second. <laughs> Next time, right? That's how you want to show your honor to the family that you find yourself amidst, in the midst of. And the neat thing, and this is, this is kind of a neat thing, this, this phrase, the not lagging behind in, di in diligence, even though it speaks to what we've just spoken about, about showing the honor, it also would, would be the door that would swing the other direction in um, the next action, which is talking about your worship of God. So being diligent both in your honor that you show to the, your family in Christ, but also, look at the next verse, next line here, it says, being fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. So we want to not lazily, but diligently be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Fervent, this is set on fire. This is ignite. And if you, were, if you were to picture this person, we all have, can have somebody that come to mind, that they are, their spirit is just ignited and on fire. We could call them a firecracker. Now, there's actually 
um, a couple different ways that th this can be um, translated, but they both lead to the same response. It could be that being fervent in spirit would be the call to have the Holy Spirit, the capital S, ignite you and, and inflame you in your service to the Lord. Or it could also be you as an individual, the spirit with which you serve the Lord, be ignited and inflamed. But both, either one of those, both of those would have the same idea that you ultimately will end up being inflamed and on fire in your spirit in how you serve the Lord. Either one of these is going to be calling you with energy to self-sacrifice to God. To be self-sacrificing in your service and being on fire for it. With energy abhorring and recoiling from that which is evil and clinging to that which is good and clinging to God. To serving one another and honoring them and loving them you serve the Lord with zeal. You are on firing, living your life in obedience to Christ. And this is not something that you can maintain through a haphazard or a slothful or a lazy diligence. This is something that you set your mind to you set your career path to say, I am going to excel as one who is on fire in my service to the Lord. There's one commentator who said the temptation to lose steam in our lifelong responsibility to reverence God in every aspect of our lives or to become lazy and complacent in, our, in pursuit of what is good, that is well and pleasing to God, that that is a natural one, but it must be resisted. Have you all experienced that pulling just in your flesh and in your life to let off the accelerator spiritually? Have you experienced that, that drive to sometimes just let off and coast a little bit? Let me start telling stories about what I did rather than what I'm doing. The people I shared the gospel with, or the people that I served, or the ways I gave to the Lord, rather than what I'm doing today. If that describes you, and if it doesn't describe you, I encourage you, ignite the fire and with fervent diligence focus on your ministry and your devotion to the Lord and serve him with zeal. This is what Paul is calling us to do. This is what Paul is calling Calvary Bible to do. And can you imagine if you look across our body, both the people here, but also when you have both rooms filled in the service, and if it were to be filled with people on fire to serve the Lord and say, let me serve him with diligence and excellence and make this my career path to be excellent in my service to him. That is what he is calling us to do, to fervently and on fire serve the Lord.
verse 12. And as we're doing that, it's rejoicing in our hope. It's persevering in the affliction. It's being devoted to our prayer. Each of these, these are fruit of godly living. If you are pursuing with fervency your service to the Lord, there is opportunity for rejoicing in the hope. And what's neat, I want you to go ahead and flip back to Romans 8. These same three are actually used in Romans chapter 8, starting verse 24. You have rejoicing in hope, persevering in affliction, and being devoted to prayer. So notice how these three, the rejoicing and the perseverance, the rejoicing and the hope, perseverance and the prayer are tied together in reference to our salvation. In Romans 8, starting verse 24, for in hope we are saved. This is salvific. This hope, the hope that we are rejoicing in, this is talking about our salvation. For in hope we were saved, but hope that is not seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he has already, already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we eagerly wait for it. In perseverance, eagerly waiting for the ultimate salvation that we're waiting to, to, um, to receive and being made holy and perfect and standing in the presence of God, this is what we persevere for. We are persevering, looking towards the well done that is coming our way. In verse 26, and in the same way, the Spirit also helps in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So follow this flow. You were saved in hope, a salvation that you have yet to fully receive, yet you wait for it. And this hope creates opportunity to persevere an eager hope of it to come. And until this time, in our weakness, the Spirit intercedes in prayer with and for us. This is true. So in chapter 12, we are rejoicing in our hope. We are persevering in our affliction. We are being devoted to prayer even in our weakness, we continue our devotion to prayer. Do you rejoice in your salvation that is yet to come? Do you sing when we all get to heaven? Right? Notice how opposed this is to the one who does not recoil from evil. What we are called to do, clinging to that which is good, we rejoice in our salvation, looking forward to the day that the salvation will be made complete and we will be holy and blameless before the very throne of our Savior. Until that day, is your hope motivating you to persevere in this hard world? This calling is hard. We have a salvation waiting for us, 
And knowing that that is true, we can rejoice that we will attain it, and that can motivate us to persevere, being devoted in prayer along the way. This is the life that is inflamed and on fire in service to the Lord. And lastly, look at verse 13. So practical. Contributing to the needs of the saints. This is a call to put into practice the love and the care that we've been talking about. Both of these, contributing to the needs of the saints and pursuing hospitality, both are others-focused. Both are self-sacrificing. The contributing is actually, and you're going to recognize this, this is going to sound a little bit familiar, it's a verb form of koinonia, fellowship. This is uh, koinonio, which is the verb to go fellowship. We are to be devoted to contributing to the needs of the saints. Enter into fellowship with, makes, or it also could mean becoming a partaker and a partner of. So if you think of it, it is becoming a partaker and a partner in the needs of the saints. If you have a brother and sister in need, you should also be in need and be a partaker with them in their need. Is your fellow believer suffering? Then you have the opportunity to preferentially honor them and share in their suffering, share in that fellowship, and meet that need. It's meeting the need to the point of hurt and suffering, which is what Fred was talking about. So we won't belabor that point, but this is what we are doing is giving to meet the needs, but also pursuing hospitality. And this is a big one to end on. It's a good thing we're out of time. This one hit me. Hospitality actually, this word is only used twice in the New Testament, this version of hospitality. This hospitality literally means loving to strangers. We are to pursue and chase after within our body those who we do not know. Are there faces in this room that you do not feel or know this intimate love with that you really have? You are to pursue this love of those strangers. You are to pursue relationships, take them into your home, go out and visit them at lunch, share their lives, get to know their kids, their schools, let them know yours, get to know their, their personalities, come to the point where you know them intimately if you have people in Calvary Bible Church that you do not yet know and love, you are being called to pursue a love of them. This hospitality, this is not a call to invite your favorite members over and enjoy the evening. This is a call, I'm not going to say 
call to get the dregs and invite them because then everybody would be <laughs> calling the Conrads over. You know, what this is a call for is to go and pursue the people that you don't know and, and, and pursue them until you love them. I challenge you this year, we have two weeks, a week before and after. I give you Christmas. You've got this week and next week pursue someone you do not know. And if you get a call from someone in the church asking you to come over and you say, I don't know them, know that this is what they are doing. At Calvary Bible Church, we are a family and the family must know and love one another. So if you don't know that with someone, pursue it. This is the call of God upon your life. Let's pray. Our God and our Savior, we thank you for our salvation. May you shape us into the image of your Son so that we may reflect the unhypocritical love that you showed us. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen.